pumped today to have in the studio with me, Dr. Justin Bass. What's up, Justin? How you doing, man? And I'm doing well. Thank you so much, Nathan. Blessed to be here. I love it. So you're normally not in the United States, which is why this is kind of a privilege to have you come sit down with us. Uh, tell everybody where you normally are. Yeah, normally, I, I guess uh, in the, over the last three years, I have been living in the Middle East in Amman, Jordan. I'm a professor of New Testament at the incredible seminary called Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary, mouthful, so they call it JETS. And uh, we also, my wife and I, uh, serve refugees there, Iraqi and Syrian, but even Yemeni uh, refugees. Uh, we're part of an NGO that, that serves them. And I'm also part of different ministries with, with churches there, Arab churches and also an international church. So, I love it. so I've been there for three years, yeah. and it's been, been a blessing to see what the Lord's doing, doing in the cool. Middle East. Yeah, so Justin and his family are back uh, in the country just for a few months and hopefully can be heading back. We're right in the middle of the COVID thing right now. So Inshallah. We, yeah, we, we yeah, shall inshallah, see. We right. shall see. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, whatever we God shall wills. See. Oh, that's funny. But uh, Justin's been a friend of mine for really a couple decades. We got our master's degrees together at Dallas Seminary and he wrote his doctoral dissertation on uh, Christ's descent to the place of the dead called The Battle for the Keys, which is actually a really helpful book as well. And then he's recently released uh, a book by the title of The Bedrock of Christianity, The Unalterable Facts of Jesus' Death and Resurrection, uh, published by Lexham. This is funny, man, because we've, we've been having this conversation for a while. Yeah, we have. <laughs> but... Until uh, we die, we'll be having this Yeah, that's, that's right. Good. You know, as we've just been talking about this, it's first of all, congratulations on finishing this project. Thanks. I know... It's been fun to chat with you throughout the process and hear how it's going. And and so really, I think to start our conversation, uh, the first thing I would just say is like nothing we're talking about today is really that controversial, which is why uh, you call it the bedrock of Christianity. These are things that pretty much everybody agrees on. That's right. Christians, Jews, Muslims, atheists, agnostics, you know, both religious and secular world can stand on solid ground with what we're going to talk about today. So talk to us about what is that and why did that prompt you to write a book like this? Yeah, you know, through through seminary that we both did together and then I went on to do a PhD and what I kept finding, especially focusing on uh, New Testament studies, early Christianity, historical Jesus studies, I was just fascinated by the certain historical facts about Jesus and about the early Christian movement and his earliest disciples that, as we said, you know, virtually everyone agree on. Mm-hmm. Now, now we say virtually because, of course, um, you know, there are Holocaust deniers. There are always crazy people. There, you know, there are moon landing <laughs> des- des- deniers. Some some basketball player thinks that we didn't land on the moon or thinks that the earth is flat or something. Yeah. So there's yeah. always, you know, people in YouTube comments. There's people on Facebook posts that can say anything. But when it comes to people who actually have expertise, who actually have credentials, who actually teach professionally, you know, at Yale, Harvard, you know, you name it, go across yep. across the Western world, yep. Europe, Canada, America, Australia, wh- wherever they teach, these facts that I'm focusing on that that I discovered are, are agreed upon by by virtually all of them, and, mm-hmm. and I found that fascinating. And I I see them in different books and different apologetics book, different books on the New Testament, different books on Jesus, but I, I wanted them to be in all of them in one place, so so you could get kind of a one stop shop 
of where does everyone agree on? So what is the absolute bedrock when it comes to to the historical facts of Christianity? I like to compare it to C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, of course, because it's one of my favorite books of all time, one of the first books I I read when I became a Christian in college. And C.S. Lewis, in that book, he sought to find where is the agreement on on doctrines Mm -hmm. for Catholics, for Protestants for yeah, that's Orthodox. how he opens the book. Yeah, yeah so where yeah. does everyone agree? Mm-hmm. And my book, in the same vein as as C.S. Lewis's, is to find where where does everyone agree on the historic side. So so I call it mere historical Christianity in, yeah. in, in the book. I use that phrase. So so I, I really want to show you know there are definitely things that everyone agrees on that are just not debatable that we can say with historic certainty and like we can say. Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon in 49 BC. We can say the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in 8070, and we can say Jesus was crucified in the early 30s AD. So, so these are certain Archimedean points of history, and I wanted to lay them out in this book. What does Archimedean mean? <laughs> so Ar- Archimedes was uh, the famous mathematician from the, I think it was about the, the second century, third century BC. So it's just used a lot to, to say certain precise points because he was so focused on precision and mathematics yep, right, and things. So, right. so Archimedean points, yep. you know. In other words, to summarize what you're saying, I mean, if the big word is, is called epistemology or just a grounding for how we know things and based on what Alvin Plantinga would call warrant and proper function. Like, is there warrant to believe this and is our brain functioning properly to be able to deduce these things based on the historical evidence that we have? And what you're saying is, yes, when you have a solid epistemological grounding, then everything that you're talking about in this book is virtually not debated. As, as cert, I like how one of the New Testament scholars is actually pretty much an atheist, uh, John Dominique Crossan, he said mm-hmm. when he talks about Jesus' crucifixion, it's as certain as anything historical can be. Right. And I think that's, 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 that's the right good. way to say it. Yep, it's good. Uh, if we assume we can do history and know things from the past, then these things are as certain as anything historically yeah. can be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Jesus existed. All right, we've we've talked about that. That's good. That's that's yes. a good that's a good thing to to say yeah, on we this got, podcast. We, got, we have to begin there. <laughs> Jesus existed, um, but then there's this really interesting thing, like you said, in the early 30s. Typically, New Testament scholars will date it between 30 and 33 A.D. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, but there becomes this movement out of Judaism, really, which is fascinating in itself. But these people who are followers of Jesus, Jesus being a Jewish rabbi who in a lot of ways was attempting to reform Judaism, but the Jews reject him. And so now this movement starts that goes out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth, which we see in the book of Acts. That's right. And so in this early movement, what did they care about? What did they talk about? Why did it splinter away from what at the time was kind of Second Temple Judaism? How was it alike, but also distinct from that? So just tell us, help us understand the world of primitive Christianity. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating because we can do a lot with comparisons because we have other Jewish groups like the Pharisees, like the Sadducees, like the Essenes, mm-hmm. which is the, from the where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, we, we have a lot of these movements, and then we have these other type of movements within first century Judaisms, you know, because there's really no yeah, right, one way right. everyone believes, so there's all these different, different ideas floating around. But we have at least 14 that I've counted distinct movements, uh, 
roughly about 40 years before Jesus was born, all the way to about 100 years after Jesus was crucified. Mm-hmm. So, so about 180 years or so throughout the span of a little before Jesus, a little bit after, we have 14 different movements that were very similar to Jesus' yep. movement. And they all had a charismatic leader. Mm. They had somebody that made probably messianic type claims, claimed to be a king, uh, gathered disciples around themselves. Some of them even predicted the destruction of the temple. Some even like Simon Bar Kokhba, which was the last of them in 132 to 135 AD, he actually tried to restart the calendar. We actually have coins from him that we've discovered in those Dead Sea uh, caves that say year one for the freedom of Israel <laughs> yeah. and year two, yeah. because he last, his, his uh, kingdom lasted for about two years before the Romans came and crushed him. That's basically what happened. So all these movements had those similar type of characteristics as the Jesus movement, but when their leader ultimately got either executed or crucified or beheaded or disappeared in some way, the movement ended. Yeah, they all fell away. They, yeah. they just completely disappeared. The, the the followers went out and got jobs. You know, they had something else to do than keep following this dead Messiah. Yeah. It's interesting because in the book of Acts, when Paul comes back to the temple right before he goes to gets arrested and goes to Caesarea and into Rome, the Roman soldier who arrests him thinks he's one of these messianic figures. That's right. The yeah. Egyptian. The Egyptian. Who, <laughs> who led fourth. He's one of the 14. Yeah, and, right. And this Egyptian's mentioned in the book of Acts. He's also mentioned in Josephus. He's mentioned, uh, I think, in other places too. But but yeah, the, this this Egyptian that led, it, it says, I think, 4,000 into the yeah. desert. Yeah. These 4,000 assassins. And he thinks Paul is one of these because there are just so many of them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Josephus, as I said, mentions at least 14 of them. And we have Philo of Alexandria mentioning them. So there was this messianic fervor yeah. in the first century. Yeah. They, they definitely were expecting the Messiah to come somewhere around this time. A lot yeah. of these movements, the Essenes, the Pharisees, uh, they had different views of the Messiah. So Jesus is one of like a dozen or so guys that are doing, whether they're calling themselves Messiah or not. It's sort of this messianic movement or revolt against Rome or something like that. That's right. And again, what makes the Jesus movement stand out is the fact that it continues even after Jesus dies and is crucified, but not just continues, but starts to proclaim that he rose from the dead. And that proclamation is, of course, what sets apart the Jesus movement from all these others, because none of the others we know, I mean, as far as all the historic evidence suggests, Not one of the others claimed that their leader, after they were executed, rose from the dead. So you have to ask that historical question. Why did the Jesus movement make this absolutely unique, unparalleled, innovative claim? Mm. Because no one had said, no one believed on record, none of the evidence suggests that any Jews believed that their Messiah would rise again from the dead. Or be crucified for that matter. Or be crucified. (laughs) What do you do with a dead Messiah? A dead (laughs) Messiah is no Messiah. Yeah, right, right. And and, and that's, again, even in the New Testament, in the Gospels, this is what the evidence suggests that the disciples of Jesus believed. They were cowering in fear. Even the women who showed boldness and bravery went to the tomb, went to the cross. They still, I think, just loved Jesus. They weren't going there because they thought he was going to rise from yeah, the dead. Right, right. Just they show him honor. They and just respect. loved. They yeah. just loved this man yeah. because of what he did for them. And the men, though, they were cowering. And I think the story with the two on the Emmaus Road captures the mindset of the, of not just Jesus' disciples, but all these Jewish movements disciples. After their leader died, because he said, "We had hoped we were hoping that yeah. he had yeah. he would be the redeemer of Israel, mm-hmm. but instead he was crucified." Yeah, you see. Yeah. 
because he was crucified, he could not be the redeemer of right, Israel. Right. And, and of course, Jesus is standing there <laughs> kind of He's laughing like, yeah, in his head to about him. that. <laughs> this is one of the, the, the most humorous, I think, of all the Jesus sayings when they say, have you not heard about yeah, what's yeah. happened? And Jesus says, what things? Yeah, yeah. What things? <laughs> what, what are y'all talking about? <laughs> what, what things? That's, my, that's one of my favorite. Of Jesus' it. sense of humor. Jesus clearly has a sense of humor. Yeah, yeah, read yeah. That, but. That's awesome. So then the historical question is that the thing that we can press on believers and, and, and historians who don't believe in the resurrection is, okay, then why did this movement, in comparison to all the other movements, why did they claim uniquely that their leader rose from the dead? What was the reason for it? How do you explain that? We know Jesus died and hung on that cross and died, and we know this explosive movement originated right where he died yeah. and was buried. So how do you explain the rise of this movement? Yeah. What I call in the book, the Nazarenes, because uh, I think we, we even have an ax. Uh, it's called the sect of the Nazarenes. I think that's probably the most ancient way they were referred to because mm-hmm. they weren't called Christians by the Gentiles later in, in Antioch. So they were probably called the sect of the Nazarenes, just like there was the sect of the Essenes, the sect of the Pharisees, the sect of the Sadducees. And then there was the sect of followers of the crucified Nazarene, mm-hmm. which I'm sure they were <laughs> dumbfounded by. People who follow the way. Was the way is another, way another probably early that, way that they were referred yeah. to. Exactly. So out of this, then, you have these early followers who are making this pretty outstanding claim that this crucified Messiah, which was totally outside of everybody's category to the begin with. The most shameful. Yeah. And, and not just the most shameful death, according to anyone, but on top of that, for a Jew. Yeah. You had Deuteronomy tree. cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And, I, and, and this is probably one of the reasons why Paul was absolutely convinced that this movement was a heretical movement, that this movement was leading Israel astray and needed to be wiped out because their leader was cursed of God. Clearly, he was nailed to a tree. Totally. Yeah, the law says it. But out of this early Christian movement, you have this one you just mentioned, who he's zealous for the law. He's zealous for the traditions for the fathers and out of his zeal begins to persecute this early movement and is literally like getting his marching orders from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council that kind of ruled the land and is going outside of Israel to persecute the church. And so who is this guy and uh, how do we think about him in regard to this primitive movement? Yeah. And I talk about that, especially that word zeal in the book. It's a fascinating word uh, to be zealous for the law, for God uh, as a Jew in that time had a rich history going even back into the Old Testament. So when you think of Saul of Tarsus as this young, probably in his 20s, uh, rising to be maybe the next rabbi, the next Gamaliel, who was his mentor, I think Saul looked back to certain heroes of his. Mm -hmm. We have our superheroes of today, he had his heroes, and his heroes would have been people like Elijah, the prophet Elijah, mm-hmm. people like... Who just ices a bunch of prophets of Baal. Exactly. <laughs> Elijah, and, and that, that word is used in that context. Yeah. When he uh, hacks to death those prophets of mm-hmm. Baal, he talks about his zeal, his zeal for, for the, the Lord. Lord. That's right. And yeah. uh, Phineas, mm-hmm. uh, the son of Aaron, the priest, and how he put the spear through that, that totally man that was sleeping people, with yeah. a woman that was outside of Israel. Yeah, like in broad and, daylight. And God praises yeah. him. Yeah. God yeah. praises him because of his zeal. And you have this with Jehu. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Like uh, Tommy Nelson calls him the Terminator. Jehu the Terminator. Um, <laughs> kills almost everyone. Yeah. But Jehu is doing it for the zeal for the Lord. And then even outside of, of specifically the Old Testament in the intermediate period uh, between 
the last book of the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus, you have the story of the Maccabees. Mm -hmm. And the Maccabees, we have books written about them, and they also were doing what they did. They rededicated the temple. They killed their the pagans that had defiled their temple, that had burnt their scriptures, killed a pig, and, and put blood all, all over the altar. When they rededicated the temple, it was all about zeal. Yeah, right. Zeal for Yahweh. It was zeal for the true God. And so Saul of Tarsus is in that same stream, and he is doing it and just like them. So what should he do with this movement that's leading Israel astray, that's seeing all these Jews come to worship this, in his mind, cursed Galilean, this false prophet, this false prophet. Mm-hmm. you know, Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18 tells a person like Saul what to do with them. They yep. should be stoned to death. They should be rid from the earth. You know, this dreamer, this false prophet. Yeah. Purge the disease from among us. Yeah. I think we have, yep. you know, a pretty good idea that that was Saul's mindset. In fact, in, in, the, in Paul's speeches in Acts, he actually says this in Acts 26, when he stands before King Agrippa, he said, this was basically my mindset at the time. I had to destroy this movement. I had to kill all these Nazarenes, I had to wipe them out because they were worshiping and this false Messiah and leading Israel straight. But then the unthinkable happened. <laughs> and on his way to persecute them, yeah, yeah. that Nazarene, that in his mind cursed Nazarene appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And yeah. he said, who are you, Lord? Because even then when he said, who are you, Lord? I, he still didn't think it was Jesus. Yeah. I mean, he knew this was deity, but this body of light that appeared before him clearly that then blinded him he said, who are you, Lord? And then he said, I am Jesus. Yeah. Talk about a massive mic drop moment, oh, man. Oh, the ultimate, the ultimate. I, I, mean, I can't imagine what that this felt God, for This him. God that you have been zealous for your entire life, read about, studied about. You find out the crucified Jesus is in the place of this God. Yeah, all of a sudden, like, you're looking at this celestial throne or something like that, and the person who's sitting on it. <laughs> It's the person you're persecuting. What the heck? That's just got to be totally disorienting. And that's why I think rightfully this is known as the most dramatic conversion story of yeah, all church history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, hands down. There's been, there are many amazing conversion stories in church history, but Paul's is the most dramatic and amazing. And so he then, you know, spends the next at least 30, 35 years uh, of his life doing nothing but proclaiming this crucified man is Lord of the world, is risen from the dead. Mm-hmm. And you need to trust in him. You need to believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins. The new creation has begun. Come into the kingdom of God. Be transferred into the kingdom of God. Uh, come out of the darkness. Come out of uh, the world of Satan and evil. And this is what he goes around the, the empire proclaiming. And that's yeah. ultimately what got him killed. So talk to us about the problem that Saul's conversion creates for skeptics. What's the nature of it? Like how quickly does it happen? And What's a skeptic left with? What kind of questions does it raise in the mind of somebody who's trying to discount what's going on in historic Christianity? Saul's conversion, Paul's conversion is is the best one to talk about with skeptics because it's the one that they really do struggle with the most to try to explain. They, they've, we have you know probably 50 or so uh, attempts at explanations over the last 200 years of critical scholarship, you know, saying he's an epileptic or mm. you know, go down the list of, of guesses of trying to explain. But what they can't say is what they try to say with someone like Peter. Some of the more skeptical scholars will talk about how, well, Peter, you know, and maybe Mary and, and, these, and these people that followed Jesus, they were really sad. You know, Peter was, uh, you know, really sad that he denied Jesus three times. And so he was projecting this yeah. Jesus in his mind. You know, he projected this hallucination through bereavement and really just wanted him to forgive him. And then he started telling his others, okay, that's somewhat... It's, it's ridiculous when it comes to 
all the evidence we have, which is that Peter and them were cowering in fear. Yeah. They in every way believed that now that Jesus has been crucified, he is not the Messiah. Yeah. Well, and Saul is not the first one to make this claim. Oh, yeah. Like it's they, not, it's they, not like he's making this up out of thin no, air. No, that's right. They, they were already saying it. But Saul is unique because he's an enemy. And yep. that's what yep. you can't that's explain right. when it comes to hallucinations. All the evidence we have of hallucinations on record, we don't have any example where, where the hallucination appears to an enemy that you project a person that's your enemy, that you're trying to destroy him and his movement. Mm -hmm. So Saul's conversion is, I think, unexplainable mm -hmm. uh, without the... It actually happened. It actually, Jesus actually appearing for. I love how uh, Bart Ehrman basically gives two options in his... Uh, most, Let everybody know who Bart Ehrman is. So, so Bart Ehrman's, uh, you know, best-selling author, uh, professor... Prophet, North Carolina. Yeah. And, and, New Testament. Yeah, New Testament. And he uh, has written many best-selling books about Jesus, about early Christianity... And, you know, I would say he's just, he gives you the most extreme, more skeptical, liberal side of the, of the argument when it comes to any topic, whether it's the authorship of books of the Bible, whether it's who, who Jesus claimed to be, uh, the resurrection, uh, these type of issues. He, he's on the kind of far side yeah. of, of not the, Christian. Yeah. Yeah. He, yep. And he's, and he's not Christian. He's, he's agnostic. Um, he gives a lot of, uh, good points. He actually wrote a book called, did Jesus exist? Uh, you know, refuting the people online and those Facebook posts yeah, and YouTube exist, comments yeah. that try to say that Jesus did crazy exist. people. So he, he helps us. <laughs> so Bart Ehrman actually is a, is an ally. He's a, he's a Christian in, apologist. In, he's a Christian apologist when it comes, <laughs> when it comes to the, that issue. Yeah. But on other issues, he's, uh, not so helpful, but, on this one, uh, in his most recent book called The Triumph of Christianity, he talks about Paul's conversion. And he basically, he basically says, some think Paul imagined it, some think Jesus actually appeared to him. Either way, and then he moves on. But I want to I really go deep on that imagine. So, yeah. so you want to say Paul, I mean, that's quite the imagination. Yeah. That Paul, who is against Christianity, trying to destroy it on his way, suddenly just imagines that the person mm -hmm. he's fighting against appears to him. I mean, there's no parallel to that on record in history of anything. So this is one I think that's really difficult for the skeptic to explain. And, and, and we should ask, what did Paul see? Yeah. What happened to Paul? All the evidence of his life demonstrates that he did believe, and, and, and someone like Bart Ehrman would, would agree, he did believe that Jesus appeared to him. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt historically what Paul believed, yeah. and he gave his life for it. Yeah, well, he gives a, the account multiple times in Acts. He's like, he appeared to me yes. on the road. And in his letters. Yep. And, and we even know, you know, we know from 2 Corinthians 11, you should read that. It's just an amazing little autobiography of, of Paul's adventures. My goodness, talk about how boring the Christian life is. I mean, being in, <laughs> being in shipwrecks, you know, being yeah, beaten, whipped, being stoned. Stone, we're not talking, about, dead, we're not talking yeah. about tweed. We're talking about he actually was stoned. <laughs> he actually was you know, beaten many times, hitting with uh, rods. He was he was left for dead on the sea. He's been hungry. He's been thirsty. He's understood starvation. He's been through all that. Why has he been through all this? Because he imagined it. Yeah, because he imagined it. Because he <laughs> no. imagined that this this dead man appeared to him. I mean, he definitely believed it. And yeah, so, so yeah. you really have to ask, what did he see? Yeah. And is he the type of person who we see evidence of other hallucinations or other imagining? And it's just That's like, That's thing. No. All the evidence suggests he was just a loving, good man, too. Yeah. I mean, compare someone like uh, Joseph Smith to oh, totally. Paul. Most non-Mormon 
people would agree that Joseph Smith was a con man. Joseph yeah. Smith was not a good man, a man that slept with you know multiple wives. This was not a good man. Paul, on the other hand, even someone like Bart Ehrman, most people would agree. Paul actually believed he was sincere in his belief. He was not a peddler. He was not trying to take money. He was loving. He has tears dropping on the manuscript as he's writing to these churches. He loves them. I mean, think about 1 Corinthians 13. Everybody quotes this at their wedding, even unbelievers. And this is written by a madman. I mean, no, this man was a sane, solid, good man. So did that good man, that honest man, is he telling the truth when he said Jesus appeared to me? I think he is. Yeah, you can apply Occam's razor to that. Yeah. And just be like, hey, you know what? There's no doubt it's the simplest explanation. The most simple explanation that requires the least amount of explanation for it is that it actually happened. That he's a sane man in his right mind and he encounters yes. the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. But then he goes on, goes to Arabia for a little bit comes back to Damascus and then goes to Jerusalem um, where he meets. We see at the end of Galatians 1, he meets with some people. So talk to us about that. Yeah, Galatians 1 and 2, I said 2 Corinthians 11, you get kind of a snapshot of Paul's incredible journeys uh, proclaiming the gospel throughout the empire and all the sufferings he endured. But in Galatians 1 and 2, he really walks us through, really chronologically, from his conversion, from the time Jesus appeared to him, all the way about uh, a little over 10 years later, how he's had multiple visits to Jerusalem, and he's met with people like Peter, like James, the brother of Jesus, like John, the author of the Gospel of John, First John, Second John, Third John, yeah. and, and Revelation, uh, John, the son of Zebedee. He met with him. He met with uh, probably some of the 12. So we know Paul was in Jerusalem hanging out with people like Peter, the chief disciple of Jesus, James, the brother of Jesus, and this is within probably four or five years of Jesus's death. Mm -hmm. So we know that Paul is hanging out with those guys who were the closest to Jesus you could be, and Paul is then relaying information he got from them to his churches, and we have those in our letters, yeah. because those meetings took place really 15 years before any books of the New Testament right. were even written. Right. Yeah. So they talk about this period, this first two decades of Christianity, because you could put James is probably the first book written in the New Testament. You know, you could put around 45, 46 AD, and then Galatians, Galatians. maybe 47, 48 yeah. AD. But roughly, you know, from Jesus's crucifixion up to there, you have this kind of silence as far as written, yep. but we, we can reach back into that time period incredibly through Paul's letters through Galatians, through Romans, through First and Second Corinthians, and we learn a, a ton about what they were proclaiming, the earliest followers of Jesus, what they were proclaiming, specifically about his death and his resurrection. So you have this zealous Jew who, on the road to Damascus, has this experience where the risen Jesus appears to him. He goes off. He didn't. I think it's interesting that he says, I did not immediately go mm. to Jerusalem to That's consult right. with them. Like, I went out to you know, some people like Tom Wright and others think that he went down to Sinai. It's like, hey, all right, Lord, how did I miss this so huge? So there's a period of reorientation that's going on. And then he goes and talks to the disciples in Jerusalem, which I thought was really interesting because somebody could argue if he immediately went to Jerusalem that it's like, hey, they planted this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Like, but no, he goes back and is like, okay, this is what I've learned. This is what Jesus revealed to me. And they're going, yeah, us too. So yeah. like you have We're multiple sources saying the same thing. That's right. So then you have Paul go to Jerusalem, what, 
36, 37 I did, around there. I agree with uh, many who say 37. There's not yep. much debate on that. It's, yep. it's right around there. It's so, 37. So we're AD. talking about three or four years after the actual event, they're having this conversation in Jerusalem. And, and he spent two weeks with yeah, Peter. Yeah. I mean, think about that. 15 days. I mean, yeah. I mean this is before internet. You know, this, <laughs> this is before video games. You can, before you can This is before television. This is before Netflix. This is before... And they weren't quarantined. They were they were out. They were maybe fishing. You know, I, I like to you know use the historical imagination. What did they do? You yeah. know, I mean, they're in Jerusalem. I mean, you you telling me Peter didn't take Paul to the place where Jesus was crucified? Yeah, right. To the place where he was buried. Yeah. To to the place where he was held in those trials where where Peter denied him. I, I just imagine Peter telling Paul about how he denied him right here. He gives him the tour. Yeah. I mean, my goodness. I mean, the first tour of Jerusalem. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> of the holy place might have been by the pope himself yeah it may have been by peter so i mean it's just taking around a guy named saul but taking around paul so <laughs> so I, so i talk about these meetings yeah. you know we talk we think about great meetings in church history and you know i talk about a few of them you know like tolkien and lewis you know mm-hmm. gathering at the pub and discussing narnia and lord of the rings you know i think about augustine jerome probably mm-hmm. the greatest thinkers after paul and peter they never met, but they exchanged letters. I just yeah. actually just this last year, I read all their letters that they exchanged with each other. It's amazing. Uh, you find out what a jerk Jerome was and how amazing, <laughs> how more amazing Augustine was than you realize. He's so humble. But yeah. uh, but when you think about these meetings, I mean, you can't get better than Peter and Paul, the great apostles, spending two weeks in, together in Jerusalem. And and again, yeah. what are they talking about? You know, this great New Testament scholar that that I know you love too, C. H. Dodd. He says, I'm sure they talked about more than the weather. Yeah. I mean, what sure. they're not talking, mean, they're talking about Jesus. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt Paul wanted to know everything he could learn mm-hmm. about those three years that Peter yeah. spent with Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And even James. I mean, Paul wanted to know probably about Jesus's upbringing, his, you know, what was it like being a, the brother of totally. Jesus? I mean, totally. So you have to use your historical imagination a little bit, but what is a bedrock fact, what everyone agrees on is that they spent that time together yeah. at that time within about three or four or five years after Jesus's death. It's amazing. So a lot of scholars point back to that and talk about um, some of the formulations and the foundations of these early Christian creeds. So hang with us. We're going to keep talking about this. So we've kind of set it up. And now next week, we're going to talk about what is this earliest Christian creed that we find in Paul's letters. So until next time, you guys have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. If you enjoyed it, tell your friends, subscribe, rate us on iTunes. And as always, if you have questions, please, please email us at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. Thanks. Bye. Peace.